Well, good morning, everyone. As I set up up here, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and that'll be our text today. We won't be covering the whole of the, that chapter, but the first, the first 16 verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I think they put more handouts on the back table if you'd like a handout for filling out for, for this lesson. And this is going to be a pretty good one as far as to hold on to because it has a good outline and a lot of information for you to refer back to in the future on this topic of, of marriage. So the, the topic this morning, again, is directions concerning marriage, the first 16 verses of, of chapter 7. And you'll notice in the outline, we are in a different section now. We've moved down to answers for the Corinthians' questions starting in chapter 7. Again, the book theme is in chapter 2-2. I determined to know uh, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I picked verse 7 at the end of verse 7 for our theme for today. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And I'll touch on that in a, in a while. And the theme that I, that I picked out for today is to live obediently themselves and to effectively minister to others, Christians should understand what the Bible teaches on any given topic. And that, and that makes sense. But in this case, matters pertaining to marriage would be super helpful. On your sheets, you can't see this up here too well, but on your, I gave this to you on your sheets. I thought, where better else to go than to our countryside website? We have a link out there for distinctives, and I put the one for marriage there, and I'd just like to read this as far as an introduction. We believe marriage is a gift of God's common grace to all mankind as a fundamental building block of society. As the architect of marriage, God alone retains the right to define its constructs and guidelines, and He has done so in His Word. In accordance with Scripture, we teach that God's design for marriage is a public, formal, and official covenant between one male and one female. God designed the marriage covenant to be a lifelong bond with divorce permitted only in the case of unrepentant sexual sin or of desertion by an unbeliever. Although sexual sins of thought are not uh, justification for divorce, all sexual immorality, both thoughts and behavior, must be taken seriously as a transgression against God. And God intends that the union between two believers be a loving illustration of the relationship between Christ and His church when carried out in obedience to the Bible and through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. This is what our elders have put out on our uh, site for distinctives. There's others that are out there, but I thought I'd provide that. There's uh, footnotes with the numbers, and you can reference those. You can see um, those better on your sheet. By way of introduction for this uh, lesson this morning, among, as we've been hearing, the Corinthians have had many issues, and among them, there was a terrible problem that existed in Corinth, and it dealt with the whole idea of marriage. And as with many of their problems, their marital issues stem sometimes from their pagan and morally uh, corrupt culture in which they lived and from which they hadn't fully separated themselves. That was a lot of their issues. They weren't separating themselves from the, the culture. Their society tolerated such things as fornication, polygamy, adultery, homosexuality, and having concubines. And some of the trends in the city of Corinth were, were an abstinence of commitment to their marriage vows, feminism. Uh, people had multiple marriages and divorces, sometimes historically upwards of 20. 
teaching that sex was unspiritual and should be forsaken. And some believers felt that being married to an unbeliever was somehow defiling. So they were divorcing to remain celibate and waiting to remarry a Christian. Now, before I get into each of the steps in the that the, each of the instructions, the directions from the Apostle Paul, I thought I'd kind of let you know that some, some of you have probably experienced this. You've gone to the store, you've ordered online some type of product, and it comes in and it's delivered, or you bring it in the door, and it requires assembly, right? You've got to put it together. Sometimes the instructions are very poor, right? I mean, they're like a, they're like a diagram. It's like a cartoon, and you can't figure out what's what what to do with that. Sometimes it's like an exploded expansion of it, and you're supposed to put it back together with all the nuts and bolts and screws, and of course, there's always a lot of them left over afterwards. I like the instructions that at the beginning, they label all the parts, A through Z or whatever, and then they tell you, take two of A and two of C and stick it through the holes that are in E, you know, and it's all very, very descriptive. What Paul is going to give today in this, in this chapter is very precise instructions from the Lord pertaining to the subject of marriage. And the first, the first folks that are, um, that are the first part, part there we want to get into is instructions for the married in verses 1 through 7. Follow along as I read these verses. 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I am, single, Paul was single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner, singleness, and one in another manner, uh, being being married. Paul starts verse 1 with, now concerning the things about which you wrote. The Corinthians had written to Paul, and they had some questions. They were struggling and confused, and they didn't know what they should do when it comes to uh, marriage, or at least they weren't willing to admit what they should do, and they posed some questions to Paul. And some of the questions that they could have posed, and it appears so because this is the type of thing that Paul answered was, um, what do we do now that we're believers and we're married? Should we stay together as husband and wife if we're both Christians? Should we get a divorce if our spouse is an unbeliever? Should we become or remain single? And what about those that are married and divorced before uh, becoming Christians? Should they remarry? Paul's going to answer some of these questions. And the first one that he deals with here is single folks. And he says that celibacy is a good thing for single Christians. He says that in that first phrase there where he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now that word touch in the Greek is a, is a Jewish, uh, Jewish euphemism for sexual intercourse. And what Paul is saying is that celibacy or abstaining, abstaining from sexual intimacy is good and right for anyone who is single. 
But Paul is not saying that singleness and celibacy is the only way or that singleness is better than marriage or that marriage is better than singleness. He's not saying that. He's just dealing with the single folks here. Of course, he's going to deal with all these different scenarios as we, as we move on later. And we know in verse 7 at the end that I, that I pointed out, Paul is speaking to those and saying that God has called you to be single and some God has called you to be married. So that's the first point that he makes. Secondly, he said one reason for marriage is purity, one re- and that's in verse 2. Now, I'm going to give you some, there are numerous reasons in the Scripture. John MacArthur lays them out in his commentary, and I'm going to fly through these because um, it's, not part, it's not the lesson here, but I just wanted you to see them. Some of the reasons for marriage, of course, are procreation, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis. For pleasure, Proverbs chapter 5. The husband with his wife is to be exhilarated or intoxicated with the wife of his youth. Also, partnership. Woman was created for man to be a helper suitable for him. Genesis chapter 2. It's supposed to be a picture of the, the church, the relationship of Christ. Ephesians 5 to the church as the husband loves his wife. And then lastly, purity. You see they all begin with a P. Uh, marriage protects from sexual immorality by meeting the need for physical fulfillment, and that's what we're dealing with here in verse 2. I wanted you to see these so that you know that there's more than just one reason, but Paul is only bringing out that one reason in, um, in, uh, in this verse 2 here. In, in verse 2, Paul is speaking to singles, and he says because of immoralities. He's stressing the issue of sexual sin or temptations to that sin, And for people who remain single, there is a danger of fornication. So it's good to get married, he says. And look there in verse 2. He says, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. And marriage is the only ordained, God-ordained provision for sexual fulfillment. But on the other hand, marriage should not be reduced to just that for sexual fulfillment. And we need to keep in mind this list here. It's interesting, about over 10 years ago... I had um, the very frustrating interaction with a young man who felt that that reason for purity there, uh, for sexual fulfillment marriage, was his reason, his only reason to get married. And I tried to, to counsel him. I stood in the gap with him. I showed him, I showed him the scriptures. I showed him kind of like where he was not thinking biblically. He didn't listen. But uh, uh, fortunately, the young woman... Uh, was spared from this single-focused, wrong-focused man, and and she saw that the relationship needed to to be called off. Uh, Paul has just let the Corinthians know that celibacy is proper and right for those who are single, but here, now in verse 3 and 4, he's going to show them that celibacy is wrong when it comes to married people. And that's the third point. Both husbands and wives are obligated to be available intimately as neither spouse has authority over their own bodies. You see, some of the Corinthians wrongly believed in a spiritual superiority of total sexual abstinence. So they even practiced celibacy within their marriage. That was one of the problems that they had. Some men had set themselves wholly apart to God as they had thought and forsook their responsibilities in marital relations, including their sexual obligations to their spouses. And this deprivation was a pro- probably even more likely when their spouse was an unbeliever. But we're going to see that Paul's instructions and commands are for all marriages, Christians to Christians and Christians to, to those that are unbelievers. In verse 3, 
he says that each spouse must fulfill his duty or her duty to the other spouse. This is a must. You see the word? They must fulfill. It is a command from the Lord. Husbands and wives are obligated to their marriage vows before the Lord, and God holds our marriages sacred, of course. And God holds the sexual relations between the couple as sacred and proper and, and the duty between the husband and wife. And some background verses, you can jot these down if you'd like. Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man should leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 4.1, this is when Adam and Eve came together. Adam knew his wife, it says in some in some translations, or he had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth. This is what they were to do, be fruitful and multiply. Proverbs 5, I already brought out this verse 19, that the, the, the husband with the wife of his youth is to be exhilarated or intoxicated or ravished always with her love. And Hebrews 13, 4 is a great verse. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Husbands and wives, then, have a duty to give sexual satisfaction to each other. And neither has more rights than the other. God intends for the couple's physical relationship to be beautiful and to be an expression of the experience of love on the deepest human level. And in verse 4, Paul reinforces the mutuality of the couple's obligation to each other by telling um, that they don't even have authority over their own bodies, but, but their spouse does. One commentator said, God honors sexual desire and expression within marriage. In fact, failure for Christian husbands and wives to submit sexually to the authority of their spouses brings dishonor to God because it dishonors the marriage. So he says, you don't, you don't have the authority. They have the authority over or and this is a present tense verb, meaning this statement is always true and is to always be continu continuous in that marriage. It lasts throughout the marriage. Married believers are not supposed to sexually deprive their spouses, whether their spouses are Christians or unbelievers. And Paul gives a bit more details at the beginning of verse 5 for those who were prone to abstain from relations for long periods of time or had intended to remain celibate within their marriages. And that's our next point, point four. Spouses must not deprive one another of intimacy unless they both agree. He's going to give some more further instructions. And when there's consent, the deprivation must be for a limited time. First, he says, stop depriving one another. Uh, Paul could not be any clearer in answering their question and commands them to stop depriving one another. Sexual intimacy between the husband and wife, of course, as I've said, is ordained by God and commanded by God. So, and Paul tells them that there is an exception for you to abstain, for the couple to po postpone their intimacy, but it, most, it, it must both be mutual and temporary. Stop depriving one another. Did you notice the word? It says, except by agreement for a time. So there needs to be consent and it needs to be temporary. It was okay for them to temporarily abstain from sexual activity only when they both mutually consented, and they set an agreeable time frame. In verse 5, Paul even provides an example of this type of abstinence by saying, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. You see that example in there? Believers might want to pray and fast over 
the spiritual well-being of another person or, or, or some situation, or, or they may want to set themselves apart sometime to draw closer to the Lord for some spiritual exercise. But when that exercise was over, verse 5 goes on to say that the husband and wife were to come together again so that their normal marital relationship and the intimacy would pick back up again. So he says in verse 5, and, and this is the title I put to it, inappropriate sexual abstinence can become a tool for Satan. I mean, the couple needed to come together, it says there in verse 5, at the end of verse 5b, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The apostle Peter wrote that our adversary Satan is prowling around looking for ways to overwhelm Christians with temptations. And any couple is a prime target during this time of abstinence. They're in a vulnerable time uh, as there is, will be a need to be sexually fulfilled after the abstinence, so they are commanded to resume their intimacy. So we see, we see Paul giving these instructions and things unfold, and then he comes to this uh, uh, verse 7, and he, gives, uh, he makes this statement about God giving people different gifts, singleness or marriage. And it's going to kind of carry through this chapter. There's going to be other instructions. But he says there in verse 6, but this I say by way of concession and not command. Concession just means an awareness, to have an opinion. Paul is aware of the advantage of both being single and of, uh, and of being married. And again, he's going to address them as we go along. But though, though Paul had just got done addressing instructions concerning marriage, his comments were not meant as a command for every believer to be married. That's what he's saying here. Though marriage is ordained by God and normal for most men and women, it is not mandated for every believer or for anyone else. And in the same vein, he, you notice a, few, a couple of times in this chapter, he's going to say, I wish people were even as I am. Paul is single. And Paul goes on to say that in verse 7. He says, yet I wish that all men were even as I am. And as a single person, Paul knew the advantages of being single. And we'll cover that in a future lesson starting in verse 32. But he did not expect every Christian to remain as or to be or act as if they were single because he knows full well that the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage at the end of verse 7 is a gift from the Lord. And that's in this phrase here. Each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. This is a summary that I found, and I thought it might be hard to read there, but I'll, I'm going to read through it because I just kind of pulled this first section, verses 1 through 7, together. One of the striking features of this text is the mutual relations between husbands and wives. Paul even says that wives exercise authority over the bodies of their husbands. Paul also taught that wives should submit to their husbands. Ephesians 5, seeing a fundamental leadership role for husbands. Still, the leadership of husbands is, is defined in terms of self-sacrificial love. Again, Ephesians 5. Thus, there is no room for autocracy or tyranny in Paul's thoughts. We also see a realistic and positive view of sexual relations in marriage. Paul is realistic. He recognizes that regular sexual relations in marriage are a guard against sexual sin. At the same time, he, command, he commends sex in marriage, which implies that it is a gift God grants to his people, which is to be celebrated. And then finally, we also see here that some are gifted to be married, while others are gifted to be single. 
There is not a monochrome calling for believers. I like that phrase. It's not monochrome. It's not everybody is married. Not everybody is to be single. There is a gift that God gives to each. But all must seek and find what God has for them at different times in their lives. That's from Thomas Schreiner in his commentary. So that's the first section. Let's move on to the second section. Instructions for the unmarried in the widows. And that's in verses 8 and 9. Follow along as I read those. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. There's this statement again about being single. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. First point, though not a mandate, Paul's preference is remaining single. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows. Paul may be addressing uh, the, the Corinthians' question about should those who were married and divorced before coming uh, becoming Christians or get married, remarry. The unmarried and the widows are two types of single people in, this, in these verses. The widows are formally married, and their marriage is ended due to the death of their spouse. The unmarried are simply people who are not married. Note, this also doesn't refer to the virgins that are in verse 25, as there's distinct instructions regarding them. The unmarried here in verse 8 are also distinct from these widows. So these unmarried folks appear to have been previously married, no longer married. They're now single. And since these women are not virgins or widows, they must be divorced women, divorced before coming to Christ. And again, the Corinthians want to know if it's okay for them to get married. And Paul's immediate answer is kind of his, his default because he knows what God has gifted him. He says, it is good for them if they remain as I. Since marriage was one of the requirements for the members of San, the Sanhedrin, of which Paul had once belonged, and some commentators believe that since Paul refers to someone that could have been his wife's mother in Romans 16.13, we can assume that Paul was previously married. He's identifying himself as a widower with these widows here. And, um, and so Paul's first suggestion is that they stay like him and single and take advantage of their freedoms in serving the Lord, as we'll see later in verses 25 through 34. But Paul follows this statement with another command. I mean, he wants them, if, he, if they can, stay single. But if a single person lacks self-control, he says, they should marry, since marriage is preferable to burning with lust. That's in this phrase here. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Here's a quote from uh, MacArthur. If a, if a Christian is single but does not have the gift of singleness and is being strongly tempted sexually, he or she should pursue marriage. The Greek verb here is in the emphatic tense. It's a strong command, and it just means get married. That's what he's telling them. If you can't contain, get married. Now, I, um, I, I thought this would, might be good for singles, if you want to take a quick snapshot of that, those of you that are praying about the situation that you're in, some guidelines when it comes to deciding about marriage. I mean, certainly you don't want to marry an unbeliever. If you're a believer, don't seek marriage just for marriage's sake, but try to find the right person and so on. And how do you find the right person? Well, you've got to be the right person. Be obedient to the Lord and be one that has exemplary character and so forth. So there's just some, some things there that you can take home with you. But verse 9 finishes by stating, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And that word in the Greek, to burn, means to be inflamed. It, it refers to a very strong passion. 
And a single person who does not have the gift of singleness will not be able to effectively serve the Lord nor be happy if they're continually burning with sexual desire, and especially in a society like the Corinthians were living in, and even more so in a society that is so sexually uh, focused today like our current day. So, okay, we need to move on. There's a lot of, lot of verses and blanks to get filled in before, for our time today. The next section is in verses 10 and 11, and it's instructions regarding divorce for Christians married to another believer. Look in verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 10, but to the married I give instruction, not I. I want to just cover that just a little bit. What Paul is saying there when he says, I give instruction, it's not I. He's instructing them, but it's not me. It is the Lord. In these verses, Paul is, going to, is, is reiterating to the Corinthian believers what the Lord Jesus had already made very clear in his earthly ministry. In verses like this one here, Matthew 5, 31 to 32, Jesus speaking and saying, Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And of course, that would be someone who is unbiblically divorced. And then in this next verse, chapter 19, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting from Genesis, Jesus did. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, again, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So really, from these verses, what we conclude is unbiblical divorce is being forbidden. In a little while, Paul is going to give instructions, starting in verse 12, where one partner is a believer and one is ma who is married to an unbeliever. But it's apparent here in verse 10 that Paul is speaking to married couples who are both Christians. Paul says the Christian wife is not to leave, or the marginal note is not to depart from, or not to divorce her believing husband, and the same way the Christian husband at the end of verse 11 is not to divorce, uh, the note is to leave his believing wife. Why? Because divorce is contrary to God's plan for mankind. Malachi chapter 2, 15 and 16, God hates divorce. Those verses that Jesus quoted out of Genesis and reiterated back in the, in the, in the New Te Testament. When God does give a scenario where divorce was allowed, we saw in that verse, as with adultery, that is only a gracious concession from the Lord to the innocent party, to the innocent party in an irreconcilable case of unfaithfulness. We're not exactly sure why the Corinthians wanted to divorce their believing spouses. Maybe they thought they could live holier or more devoted to the Lord as celibates. Others may have had some residual sins from their pagan lifestyle, and, they, and the whole idea of sexual relations and all just kept troubling them. Others may have found someone else 
that they thought was more suitable. And it appears in the context that Paul is not dealing with divorce based upon adultery, but he was talking about divorce for unbiblical reasons. That's why he was forbidding them to be divorced. Again, maybe even for what Corinthians incorrectly thought was a good spiritual reason to divorce their spouses. Therefore, Paul's instruction to the believers is do not get divorced. Next point in this uh, chapter, going into verse 11, if a Christian couple is involved in unbiblical divorce, neither partner is free to marry someone else. They must stay single or rejoin their former mate. Whatever their reasons, divorce was, was not the answer. They were to stay in the marriage, but it's possible that some of the Christians had already crossed that line and gotten a divorce, or they were in the process of finalizing their divorces. So Paul provides further instruction in verse 11 to those Christians who had been unbiblically divorced from their Christian partner, and where he tells them, remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. Neither partner is free to marry someone else. They must stay single or be reunited with their former spouse because in God's eyes, they were still one, and that is God's command. Okay, let's move on to the next section. And now we have instructions regarding a divorce when an unbeliever deserts their Christian spouse. And that's gonna, we're going to see this in, starting in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Follow along, uh, starting in verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy." Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. But how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? He says, in, at, right at the beginning of verse 12, do you notice he says, but to the rest I say. Paul is addressing those Christians who are married who were not covered in the previous verses, uh, verses 10 and 11. And he says, this I say and not the Lord. Now that might be confusing. Is Paul coming up with this all on his own? Um, no, this is not Paul's human opinion. And he's not saying that what he's written here is not inspired. What Paul is saying is that like he had done before when he referred back what the Lord Jesus had taught about in his earthly ministry, he said the Lord Jesus had not specifically spoken on this topic or this scenario, and there's no previous God-given revelation on this subject or scenario. But now, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing about this topic, and God is, in God is instructing the Corinthians through Paul's writing, this is God's word and not Paul's opinion. That's what he's saying when he says, I say and not the Lord. Paul is addressing this question. What is a Christian supposed to do if they were already married to an unbeliever and possibly even an immoral or idolatrous pagan? Were they free to divorce an unbeliever and, and, and either live single or possibly marry another believer since that would be a better situation? 
Uh, knowing that their bodies were temples of the Holy Spirit, as Brian taught last week, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, maybe these believers thought that they would somehow be spiritually defiled since they were now unequally yoked with, with an unbeliever. And let's see how God answers the Corinthians through Paul's letter. First point here, a Christian is not to divorce their unbelieving spouse who is willing to remain in that marriage. We see that in verses 12 and 13. And I'm going to put this up on the screen, and I've put in kind of quotes as far as um, some of the things that we can, so we can know who's who in this verse. Verse 12, if any brother who is a Christian has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman, a Christian, who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Or the marginal note is, leave her husband. And though the relationship could be challenging and difficult and frustrating at times, if the unbeliever loves the believer and wants to remain in that marriage, and if there's no biblical reason for a divorce, meaning there's no adultery involved, the the believer needs to stay in that marriage. And though some Christians may think this believer-unbeliever union is somehow defiling, and the Corinthians probably did, and they were struggling with that, Paul states in verse 14, that just the opposite is true. Because he states there and in verse 14, he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now are they holy. So the unbelieving spouse, as we see, to fill in the blank, is sanctified. The children are holy. I think I have a quote here from... Schreiner. Yes, I do. The holiness of the believer transforms the unbelieving spouse so that he or she becomes holy. We're going to explain what that means. Their marriage and sexual union are not defiling, but sacred and beautiful. This is analogous in some ways to Jesus touching the leper, Matthew 8. The uncleanness of the leper does not defile Jesus. Instead, the power of Jesus' holiness and his healing authority cleanses the leper. That's Thomas Schreiner. So saying the unbelieving spouse is sanctified doesn't mean that they're saved, and it doesn't mean that there's a guarantee that they're going to be saved. Sanctified just means to be set apart. And what does that mean? In God's eyes, that home is set apart when any member becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. And what what does that look like? Well, God's blessings fall upon that home where one person is a believer. All the graces and blessings that flow into that believer's life from heaven will certainly spill over and have a good, protective, peaceful, and potential spiritual impact on everyone that lives under that roof. The unbelieving spouse or children who live with a Christian, they're witnessing that special relationship between God and one of his children uh, who are the, the believing spouse or the believing parent. And practically, That home is consecrated by the reading and application of God's word and the prayers of the believing spouse or parent. And because of the believer's testimony, the gospel is not only being spoken, but it's also being lived out before the eyes of the unbelieving spouse and the children under that roof, which could be used of the Lord to bring them to saving faith in Christ. Certainly, there's a guard against sin, and God sets up a hedge of protection upon his dear ones that others in the family experience and benefit from. I remember, and it's kind of related in a little way, 
Remember back in the Old Testament, I think, Jake, I think it was Jacob who had an uncle Laban. And his uncle didn't want him to leave because Jacob living within the family there, I mean, he was, Laban was being blessed. I mean, the herds were just, were just exploding. And he was, uh, he, he was reluctant to have uh, Jacob leave. Another example of the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle Peter gives the example of a Christian wife having this type of impact upon her unbelieving husband, which could lead to his salvation. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word or unbelievers, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of the wives, as they observe your pure and respectful behavior. Now, he's talked about the believing, we've talked about the believing, unbelieving spouse being sanctified by the believing spouse, but what about the children? In a similar vein, Paul finishes verse 14 by stating that Christians married to unbelievers and who also have children don't need to fear that their kids are unclean or defiled by the unbelieving father or mother. They would be spiritually unclean if both parents were unbelievers, but with the presence of just one believing parent, they are protected by God and come under that, the same gospel and grace influences I previously noted. It's not to say that they will automatically be saved, but they will be protected from undue spiritual harm, from false teaching, and they certainly will receive spiritual blessings through the one believing parent. Therefore, Paul describes the, these blessed children as holy, and again, meaning that they are set apart. So, we've covered the scenarios where the unbelieving spouse wants to stay with the believing spouse or consents to live with their believing spouse, but what if the opposite is true? What if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave that marriage? That's point number three. If the unbelieving spouse desires to leave or abandon or desert their believing mate, the believer is not bound to the existing marriage and may live in peace. And that's, we see that in verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister, the believer, is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. When the unbeliever can no longer tolerate the believer's faith and they want to leave or divorce the believer, the believer is not under bondage to remain in that relationship. The believer is no longer bound or, or obligated. Per God's instructions through Paul here, they've been released due to the abandonment of or the desertion by that unbelieving spouse. The situation really is out of the believer's control. The believer can certainly pray for the unbelieving spouse. They can assure them of their love and their desire to be together. But God has called the believer to peace. And it's better for them to, to leave in order, the unbeliever to leave in order to preserve peace for the believer, Paul instructs here. The believer should not insist on the unbelieving spouse to stay, stay if they are determined to leave. MacArthur's uh, commentary says, quote, fighting, turmoil, bickering, criticism, and frustration disrupt the harmony and peace that God wants for his children to have. Again, this is a concession. And Paul ends um, this chapter in verse 16 where he says, 
For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? If the, if the believer strives to stay in the marriage with an unbeliever, there's no assurance that all of their efforts of evangelism and godly living will result in, the, in saving their unbelieving husband or wife. Why? Because salvation is of the Lord. It is a sovereign work of our sovereign God. And the likelihood in a bickering, fighting when the believer can't tolerate the faith and it, there's just that, that unrest in that re- relationship, the likelihood of a good outcome is minimal. When the unbeliever adamantly refuses to stay in the marriage and is persistent about wanting to leave. So the Lord does not grant any other option than to let the unbeliever leave. So those are the different scenarios that are here. And we'll probably see more of this. We're certainly going to see more of this unfold in, um, in our chapter. But I, I, left, I, I did re- put some information on your sheets at the bottom above the application here, there because sometimes there's confusion as to when is the marriage bond broken. And we see by the distinctives that our elders have put together and certainly by the scriptures that we've already covered today, I just thought I'd put this here. And again, this might be a good reference for you to look back upon to answer any questions. But the first one, of course, is death. The marriage bond is broken when one of the spouses dies. Romans 7:2. for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Now, Paul was using that as a description, when, uh, as kind of like a reference verse as far as for what he was teaching there in chapter 7. But what he was saying about marriage between a husband and wife, if one of them dies, then that bond is broken. And they're released, certainly, from that. It's the same in our chapter. Look in verse 39. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, and Paul says, only in the Lord. She's free if she's a believer. She's free to remarry if her husband dies, but marry another believer. We'll cover that later when we get to that verse. The second reason Jesus' teachings, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, is adultery, unrepentant sexual sin. In those cases there, the Lord allowed, and Paul reinforced it here, that divorce is permitted. And then the new one that we looked at here, the third one, I mean not new, but the third one we looked at was the desertion or the abandonment of the unbelieving spouse wanting to leave, can't tolerate the believer, and they want to leave, they want to divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, 15, divorce is permitted. Paul uh, teaching that through the... Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I just wanted to put this also here. And throughout Scripture, wherever a legitimate divorce occurs, of course, it's permission to remarry is assumed. If someone has been biblically divorced or biblically where the marriage bond is broken, the believer can remarry, and certainly they, they remarry another believer. Okay, by way of application for... I'm not going to assume that everybody here is is a member of Countryside. Everybody here is a, is a believer. There are certain some folks that could be here that are struggling with what does this all mean. And before you need to know the ins and outs of marriage, uh, it would be certainly uh, more important for you to uh, know and learn about salvation through Jesus Christ.
Today is the day of salvation. The, the, the problem that man has, everyone has, is that the, through one man's disobedience, Adam, sin is passed upon all men. And therefore, we've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. Uh, God is angry with the wicked every day, and people need to repent. They're guilty of their sin, guilty to be, uh, uh, of condemnation, guilty to be, and, and should be punished and separated from God for all eternity, and they need to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died a perfect substitutionary death so that you could be forgiven. You might be here not uh, knowing what it means to be a believer, and the first and foremost important thing for you, and I beseech you, is to and, and implore you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and make sure that that you are forgiven of all your sins and that you know, know the Lord. For the believers that are here, again, as I said in the theme, it's important to know any scripture, what it teaches on any subject, and particularly here in this case, uh, matters pertaining to marriage and divorce. It's, um, and of course, there's going to be more to come on this topic in, in this chapter on marriage, but it's important for you to know personally what does the Bible say because of maybe the different scenarios that you might find yourself in? Uh, and you'll be able to have the answers. Or if somebody comes to you and asks questions about this topic, uh, you could hang on to that sheet and you could use it as at least a reference guide and do more study and jot other things down there so that you'll be able to help them out and answer some of their questions. Again, one size does not fit all. It is not monochrome. God's gracious gift to some is singleness and to others in marriage, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to, we need to uh, certainly uh, address and approach that. If we're single, approach that properly, you know, seeking the Lord for his will in, in, your, in your lives. If you're married, that you obey the Scripture, the things that we heard today when it comes to those that are, that are married. And lastly, when you're dealing with other people, I was thinking about being kind and listening, listening to their situation, being considerate when dealing with people's issues and struggles, we can assume things. We can jump to conclusions when it comes to where a person is or, or what they're thinking. But give it a good ear and be prayerful as you're listening to somebody. And then be bold, yes, and use the Scripture. Don't use your opinion. Use the Scripture. It's powerful. The Word of God is alive and powerful. It is the, the light unto our, our, our pathway that we ought to walk and we can help others to, to walk also. And it certainly is that which causes us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And there may be people with issues and struggles pertaining to their current relationships. Encourage others to good behavior and being obedient to God's Word. So when I, when I started the beginning of the lesson this morning, remember I talked about you get that product for, for us to, to assemble together. And the, and the clarity and the um, conciseness of the instructions that you get can prove uh, helpful and whether or not at the end when it's all said and done that you have um, maybe some nuts and bolts left over or you use them all and everything as well. I really, I really liked uh, and, and was so overwhelmed when I was studying this passage, just these first 16 verses, to see how through the Holy Spirit... Paul's pen was moved in such a clear, concise, orderly manner, and all of the questions that the Corinthians had, Paul was answering one after another. And thank God for the instruction of his word, the clarity of it, and shall we pray.
Father, we bless you and thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't have to figure out ourselves what it is that we're to do, but we can study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that do not need to be ashamed, uh, straight cutting, rightly dividing the word of God, studying it, knowing what it says so that we can apply it in our lives and help others when, when they have different questions and issues, just like Paul did with the Corinthians. Help us to be a blessing to others and serve others. And Lord, increase um, our effectiveness and usefulness in your kingdom by these lessons that we learn in the book of Corinthians. For Jesus' sake, amen.